Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. I'm Dr. Rishi Desai, and today we have a very special guest, Regina Hertzlinger, also known as Reggie, who's been named the godmother of consumer-driven healthcare because of her groundbreaking scholarly articles and books on the subject. As a professor of business administration at the Harvard Business School for nearly 50 years, her focus has supported the explosion of wearables, telehealth, freestanding urgent care facilities, and health savings accounts, among many other innovations. She's a successful medical technology entrepreneur herself, a best-selling author, and influential voice in shaping public policy. I'm looking forward to getting her take on the current state of healthcare in the U.S. and what she thinks we can expect in the years ahead. Thank you so much for being with us today. My great pleasure. I greatly admire what you do and applaud your success. It's magnificent. Well, given your breadth of experience, that's very kind of you to say. And uh, maybe a good place I'd love to kind of get started is how you got that breadth of knowledge and experience. What first got you excited about the healthcare space? I was always a business person. And um, I decided to become an academic. I like doing research. And my business was such that... uh, I couldn't even get pregnant because I was always on a plane and I really wanted children. So I thought, well, I'll get a doctorate in business and teach in the School of Business, which of course, fool's version, where angels feared to tread at that time. There were no women students, let alone women faculty at schools of business. But I did pursue it, and I did my doctoral thesis at a neighborhood health center in Charlestown, where I tested whether the traditional tools that are used to measure productivity and enhance productivity could be applied in a setting like that. And uh, the neighborhood health center was sponsored by the Mass General Hospital and had incredibly dedicated and talented people. But it was horribly inefficient. It was off the scale inefficient compared to most businesses. And so I thought this is an area that's so important to everybody in the world. And even then, it was very costly. And it could benefit from not only business tools, not just perfecting what exists at the margins, but from innovation. And so I started my work in kind of two tranches, one tranche being what are the public policy changes that would encourage and enable innovation? And secondly, how does one really innovate healthcare? So there's a lot of talk about innovation, but it's mostly you should, you could, you might, you would. But innovation, like everything in life, is 95% perspiration. How do you really get it done? I have been teaching that. I've been writing case studies about how innovative healthcare firms in all parts of healthcare 
and not only companies, but nonprofits as well, how they succeeded and how they failed in delivery, insurance, digital health, biotech, uh, medtech, in virtually all fields of healthcare. If you can indulge me, I mean, we've had so many changes in the past 24 months. What would be one example of a case study that you could kind of educate me and our audience on in terms of how they put in the perspiration and made a difference? So I've written two that are indicative of the changes, and they have to do with the hospital-to-home movement. And that began in response to COVID. We have very few hospital beds. We have 2.8 per thousand as opposed to Germany, which has eight per thousand with an overall spending on healthcare, which is roughly half of the hours. So when COVID hit, this minute number of beds got filled right away. And so many people could not get the health care they needed. And I believe that was the genesis of the hospital to home movement. By genesis, I mean it's moving away from being an idea that people talked about endlessly to being a reality, which it certainly now is. One case study is of the insurance firm Humana which dominates, it is the second largest seller of Medicare Advantage. And Humana decided that it would implement hospital to home. And it um, has done it in a fascinating way. It's carved out a huge portfolio of activities that would enable hospital to home ranging from ambulatory care center, ambulatory surgery centers, physicians who come to your home, other clinicians who come to your home, and they financed it in very unusual ways. Some of the financing was done in partnership with private equity firms, which is very unusual in healthcare. Healthcare is very siloed, you know, I do this way, that's the way I do it. The other case is about Philips, which is also attacking the hospital to home market. But Philips, it's techie, techie, techie. You know, Philips is an exceptional monitoring company and it has invested heavily in monitors that enable the hospital to home movement. And that sounds so easy, but those monitors have to talk to the hospital system since the hospital system rarely talks to itself, let alone to outside monitors. It's just a daunting technological task. So those two, I'm not sure they're going to work, but they are examples of revolutionary changes in the structure of the healthcare system that have come about within the past 24 months. Another one is I wrote a case about Fitbit about five years ago 
in my nomenclature, it was a technology-driven company. It was led by a techie. It had a zillion patents, but it was not that consumer-friendly, and it was a consumer product. And it was competing with somebody, you know, you wouldn't sleep at night if you were competing with them, and that is Apple. So now Google goes and buys Fitbit. So Google's not terrific at consumer-facing innovations. Remember those Google glasses, those horrible things. Um, so why is it buying Fitbit, well, increasingly clinical trials have to be done remotely, again, in part because of COVID. And Fitbit, with its technological prowess, could expand this watch into an even smarter watch and wearable sensors and ways of detecting things that are very relevant to clinical trials. So COVID has profoundly changed the healthcare system. You know, a couple of things that you just brought up. One is this notion of doctors going back out of the community, doing home visits. You know, that strikes me as something that we always think of as a very old-fashioned way of doing things. In nowadays, a lot of people talk about the the importance of healthy foods and eating whole foods, cooking at home, you know, in the community to abate the onset of disease. Some of those ideas feel very old-timey. And then there's this other kind of category of, of interventions like Google Glasses, Fitbit, you know, that feels very techy and kind of futuristic. And so I'm just curious to get your thought on how consumers perceive these different technological innovations. Like if I said to someone, which of these are tech innovations, they probably would say, oh, yeah, Fitbit, yes. Google Glass, yes. Doctors' home visits, no. You know, like that's not thought of as innovative, even though in many regards it is. And so I'm just curious to get your thought on what we define as innovative when it comes to consumer-driven changes. Well, anything that helps the consumers either by empowering them or by making things more convenient when it comes to consumers is innovative. And you bring up a terrific point. You know, the movement of physicians to the home would be economically infeasible without the technology uh, because the physician would have enormous traveling time but the emergence of telemedicine and these sensors, not just wearable sensors, but implantable sensors that, for example, measure various characteristics of congestive heart failure, which are very important to the physician. And those can be just transmitted to her wirelessly. So, when the physician comes to the home, if she were to come, it would be with tremendous information, much more economically feasible kind of visit and very different from the old-fashioned visits, which I still remember when a physician would come and he would know there were no females or none that I knew at that time. Uh, he would know nothing, you know, and uh, it was really a daunting visit um, to try to help a patient about whom 
you have very little information. Today, were a doctor to actually come physically, they would be armed with just enormous amount of information. And I think patients love it. I know my daughter is an endocrinologist and her patients love Livongo, which is a way of monitoring diabetes or these semi-implantable wearable glucose sensors. Um, so Americans, of course, generally are in love with technology, but they're hardly averse to the advances, especially the sensor advances in medical technology. When you zoom out over the last 50 years or so, so 1971 to now, what would you say are, in your opinion, the healthcare changes that have benefited consumers the most? You know, and we can focus on the US here, but what would you say? You're not gonna like this, but I went to MIT. My husband is an MIT PhD physicist and our entrepreneurial efforts were in medical devices, life-saving devices, artificial hearts, rapid infusers that keep people who would otherwise bleed to death alive and were one of the reasons in this horrible Boston Marathon killing that so many people stayed alive, our machines kept them from bleeding to death. So I hate to say this, but technology has been amazing in its impact. I think that delivery and insurance have lagged seriously behind. There've been improvements in delivery organization, trauma centers, centers that focus on catheterization, focus on imaging, focus on things that take tremendous amounts of skill, but still hospitals are very inefficient, very costly, uh, very hard to access, and they're the heart of our healthcare system. And the insurance industry, like the hospital industry, is oligopolistic in English. That means no competition. So, you know, Insurance, that's a $2 trillion industry. If you go to buy yogurt, you could buy 40 varieties of yogurt. If you go to buy insurance, there are two or three insurance policies. I cannot say that these very important fields have made the progress that they should have made, but technology has been awesome. Of course, it costs too much. It's delivered by an oligopolistic, barely transparent PBM network. There are lots of things wrong with it, but the core technology, most of it is amazing. You mentioned that there are 40 flavors of yogurt and only two of insurance companies. I would add that the two flavors aren't particularly tasty either, which adds to the dissatisfaction. I have always, and perhaps it will happen, I've pushed for what I call consumer-driven healthcare. And what that means is when your employer, I don't know who you work for, Rishi, but my employer, Harvard University, my brilliant employer pays me $28,000 less than they would 
Instead, they take the 28,000 that could have been my salary and use it to buy health insurance. And I get these two unappealing flavors, mush and mush. I would like to have that money only if I buy Obamacare compliant health insurance. But I'd like to have that money and to buy health insurance that I want. I work out a lot. I'd like to be rewarded for that. There are lots of things I want in my health insurance. And I think if we were to get that money, only if we buy good health insurance, that you would see more than these two unappealing flavors as you do in any consumer market. I mean, we don't need 40 flavors in yogurt, but we have them. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. And, you know, I guess I guess the next point is that a lot of folks, when they go and make a choice, any choice, uh, it can be confusing and overwhelming. And I'd like to know what you think technology has done for the folks in our society that are least educated, least capable of making a decision simply because they don't have time to go and learn about it. Oftentimes it can be in another language. Maybe they don't have time to understand in their own language what things mean. So how has technology helped them? And have you seen a widening of the gap between the haves and the have-nots because of technology? Does it magnify that gap? Well, certainly there is a gap between the haves and have-nots in healthcare, even in the UK, where people who are educated or connected get better, quicker access than people who are not educated and not connected. But the big problem in healthcare is, I don't know what good quality healthcare is. Maybe you do. I don't. I do know what good quality yogurt is. I do know when I buy a stock, uh, I can tell whether that stock is financially viable or it's going to fall apart tomorrow. I can't tell any of that in healthcare. So I think what we need is what I call a healthcare SEC. So the Securities and Exchange Commission made the financial markets, which used to be like healthcare. Don't bother your pretty little head. I'm Dr. Wonderful. I'll do everything. I'm hospital wonderful or nurse wonderful. Don't, don't worry, you don't need all that information. I'm just confuse you. So the SEC made all that information transparent. And it is available to everybody because these journalists came in, Rishi, not the propeller heads, but Michael Bloomberg, the Motley crew with those silly hats. They're actually experts, financial analysts. And once they had the data available, which were trustworthy and uniform, they could translate it. They could take it from the arcane and translate it to people. So here's how markets work in my view. People buy cars and mostly they have no idea what the heck that car is like. But there is a group that's pretty smart about buying cars. They buy cars and they talk about cars and Consumer Reports writes about cars. And your local blog has a card. 
and it seeps down. That's how Toyota, which is really a great car. But 30 years ago, who would buy a Japanese car? People thought things made in Japan were terrible, but smart people started buying Toyotas, writing about Toyotas. The buyers still didn't know how a car is made. When I go in a showroom, I see somebody lift the hood of a car. What the heck are you looking at? That's a computer in there. But they communicated, even though you don't know a compressor from an alternator, they could communicate to you what a good value for the money is. What we need is not so much technology, in my view, what we need is some uniform, reliable source of data. People say, my Aunt Mildred, she told me that doctor was amazing. Well, your Aunt Mildred, with all due respect, has no idea what doctor is amazing, nor even do other doctors. They may know their peers, but you know, what do you know about the amazing doctors in Brockton, Massachusetts? So, no, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that continues to be the issue is that, you know, there's this inequality of information that floats around and that kind of underlies you know, what we see with health outcomes as well. Well, I would say there is no information. I can tell you because I am an economist. I think I can tell you pretty much what is a good quality stock and what isn't. I cannot do the same in healthcare because the information I would need to make that decision is not available. That makes sense. I'd like to then switch gears maybe briefly and talk about the future. You know, what, what do you see coming in the years to come? You know, I'm not imagining that you're a seer or an oracle of any sort, but probably the closest thing to it. So what, <laughs> what are your thoughts on what's to come? Well, I think what we saw during COVID, which were tremendous changes in the delivery system. For example, these health hubs that CVS has. CVS has 10,000 stores. Walgreens has 8,900 stores. Amazon is going into providing healthcare. They're not doing brain surgery there. They're not treating infectious diseases there, but they're taking care of the needs of people in convenient neighborhood locations. I think that's very important. I think the ambulatory surgery movement, the freestanding urgent care and emergency care, all this breaking up of hospitals located in center city, and disseminating care out in the community. I think that will grow and uh, it will be good for people because it'll be more convenient and it will also be less costly to get that kind of care. That will be abetted by telemedicine, which right now is primitive, but which will become refined for example, a group of my students started a telemedicine firm about which I wrote. One was a guy from Google. One was a woman child psychiatrist from India. 
One was a computer scientist from Nigeria, and they started a company that's doing very well to provide mental health to caregivers who were so overwhelmed by COVID and all the strictures on them, especially lately. So I think that technology will help, sensors will help, more convenient healthcare will help. And I believe, I warned you, I went to MIT. So I think CRISPR gene therapy tools will be very useful. mRNA will eventually be used not only in vaccines, but in the many genetically derived diseases. So all of these innovations in delivery in what's called digital health, telemedicine, wearable sensors, implantable sensors, in technology that can cure and perhaps prevent diseases that are now considered incurable. In total, they should control the rate of increase of healthcare costs. In my view, they will reduce it and lead to much better quality healthcare, which means that this cruel fact of the US healthcare system, which despite the incredible wealth of this country and the charity of its people, roughly 30 million people remain uninsured and many millions more are underinsured I see that these innovations, which change sites from very expensive ones to lower cost ones, change sites from hard to reach ones to convenient ones, vastly improve communications technology and the ability to know just how sick you are and create a panoply of effective cures. I think they will control costs. And by doing so, they will make healthcare available finally to many more people, hopefully all the people in the US and in other countries. We have a lot of early career health professionals in our audience. I'm curious, what is your advice for folks like that, that may be just starting their career in terms of uh, how to approach one that is similar to yours in some way, not in the specifics, but in the sense that they can get uh, what they want out of life? So I meet many young people who are in clinical care or who are scientists or are involved in artificial intelligence or other forms of using technology. And I think what they're lacking is an understanding of how to make their great thoughts and their great ideas happen. And all too often, I meet young people who've worked out something spectacular, which I could have told them has no chance. That no chance as a technology or whatever it is, it's great, but no chance. It'll never be adopted. 
So I think a very important part of one's education, if you are a scientist, a physician, a clinician, is to try to understand the environment that you're working in and how your ideas can be broadly disseminated so you don't wind up a frustrated old coot and say, not to be self-serving, but I've spent 35 years teaching this subject and I have written a book about it called Innovating in Healthcare which will be published by Wally next year. But in addition to that, I made a MOOC for Harvard edX and it's available for free. And it is a synthesis of the lessons from five or six case studies of successful and unsuccessful healthcare businesses. Some of them are nonprofits in delivery and insurance and medical technology and biotechnology. And I would urge them to watch that or something like it so that before they fly off and spend years and years on working on something that despite its being wonderful is simply infeasible, that they know that it's infeasible, or if it is feasible, what are the realistic next steps to making it happen? I wish that osmosis offered a course like this. How can you be a successful innovator? not a business mogul. You want to be a business mogul? Great. But how can you actuate your ideas so they're just not lying around someplace? Oh, listen, thank you so much, Reggie, for joining us today. That was fantastic. I, I appreciate your wisdom and your humor. I know our audience gained a lot. So thanks for joining us today. It's been a great pleasure to be here. And I can't tell you how much I admire what you've done, but please add a course on innovation to all the rest of the marvelous things you've done. That's a great suggestion. The uh, appetite is out there. We know from students to learn more about healthcare innovation and and certainly getting that content out there uh, makes a lot of sense. I appreciate you bringing that up. Listen, I'm Rishi Desai. Thanks for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. <laughs>